Welcome to another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch. This is your host Ashwin Krishnan. In this episode, CISOs are goalkeepers, all guts, no glory. We speak with Giovanni Vigna, CTO and co-founder of Lastline, a cybersecurity startup and director of UC Santa Barbara's Center for Cybersecurity as a computer science professor, as he shares his unique perspective as both a security technologist and an academician. He shares his insight on how triage is the most overlooked and probably the most impactful aspect of security operations. Done right, it can be a powerful ally. Done poorly, it can suck up time investment and leave you exposed. So welcome folks. This is another edition of Cybersecurity Dispatch where we get security practitioners both on the vendor side as well as on the customer side to come and talk about not your everyday conversation about, hey, how we are bigger and faster and better than the other guy, but really talk about some of the things that are either overlooked because they don't fit the quote-unquote buzzword barometer or because they involve what I consider to be non-tech stuff like humans and behaviors and affiliations and so forth. So with me today, I have Giovanni Vinya. I'll have Giovanni talk about where he comes from. He wears actually two different hats. So it's a very interesting duality of conversations we can have. But I'll hand that over to Giovanni to talk about what he does, and then we can delve in. Okay, so yes, I'm Giovanni Vigna. I am both a professor of computer science at the University of California in Santa Barbara, and I'm also the co-founder and CTO of Lastline, which is a company that provides malware protection tools to sort of fundamentally large enterprises. So why don't we pick it off where we left off but just before we started the podcast is the conversation about what's happening in enterprises today when it comes to the mismatch of people, qualifications, and the real problems that they're trying to chase, right? Yeah. And you brought up a really interesting point. I want to make sure that the, that the listeners uh, get to hear of this. And no, absolutely. And this is something that surfaced more in my interaction with people around this convention than looking at the marketing materials <laughs> of various vendors. And, and the basic idea is that I think that we are experiencing evolution from a tool that does something to looking at a tool that does something for somebody. Mm -hmm. So there is a new human aspect where you don't want just a tool to provide you with some functionality, but you put more in the human context where like, oh, this tool will allow this particular persona Mm -hmm. to do something better, more efficiently, or to be the right persona in the first place. So I was telling about this friend of mine who's, you know, a sort of like a security expert, incident responder, and he was telling me that nine out of ten times, he ends up doing stuff that is completely overqualified for. So, and I was telling you, he gave me the example of, you know, reinstalling your mom's laptop, where you do it because you like your mom, but, you know, I'm a computer science professor, so, you know, that's not my job. It should be somebody else's job. And it's sort of like in the industry, there is this problem that now we surface all these alerts, detections and things, but who do we route this detection to? And it's really a triaging problem. If you think about it, it's finding the right person with the right skill set that is not underqualified nor overqualified for the job. And so this is a good rationale to actually also evaluating solutions. Like like, this solution in my context, would it be able to sort of like percolate up 
the right information for the person that I think will use this tool. And I think this is an important framework that is not as sexy as artificial intelligence and blockchain yeah. and other things that are very hot at the moment. But at the very core, it is a human problem and it will save money and time for companies because human resources are getting more and more expensive. So let's talk about the human element, right? Because given the number of vendors on the show floor over here, right? You, you, my eyes literally popped out. Like, can't even... Crazy. Yeah. It, on the one hand, the supply is going through the roof, right? Effectiveness is a different story, but supply is going through the roof. And on the other hand, you're saying that the first bar is let's say you're doing a POC, but the POC is more on your terms in terms of how does this tool help me yes, and my team. So that requires more time. And time is probably the only commodity that people don't have. You can even get budget, but you can't get time. So what's your opinion in terms of how does a time-strapped organization, which is every organization, now go this extra step of saying, okay, what does this particular vendor's tool do to me in my environment. So the POC actually is reflective of not what the vendor wants to tell you, but really what it means to you. Yeah, I think, I think this is something that is focusing, the answer has to focus around value. Mm -hmm. So there are many situations in which vendors have a very set process yep. in which they do their POC. They come to you with little or no flexibility yeah. and they don't interpret the customer needs yeah. correctly. So I think that I can tell my personal experience at last, and I'm not saying that we're the perfect yeah. POC people, so it's not a sort of like a vendor pitch. Plug. Okay. Yeah, yeah. It's not at all. But, but I think that when, when I am personally involved, I really sit down and, and the first question that I ask is, what is your pain? Hmm. What, is, hmm. what is that makes you really ugh, having that moment of the... And sometimes it's something that our solution has nothing to do with, yeah. which is in any case interesting for me. Yeah. I love these conversations with customers. But oftentimes it's really like, you know, I don't have enough people. I cannot deal with this. Too yeah. much stuff. And so it becomes feedback for us yeah. as a company, but also as a, somebody who thinks about these things, about how important it is to just give the right information to the right people. And so this triaging of information is really important. And you see that in a way, it's a great metaphor to say in a hospital. Yeah. You know, somebody got it with a, with, has been shot. Right. And it's like, no. what kind of wound that is? Yeah. Because, you know, if you've been compromised, but you have a generic ransomware right. on your machine is not as bad yeah. as major state nation actor that just entered your network and is trying to set up shop. Yeah. Those are two different things that should be sent to different personas. So the question that a customer can ask is, are you exposing to me these different scenarios that allows me to make the decision of sending this to X or Y. Yeah. And I think that's something that is worthwhile to describe for, you know, or to apply to almost any technology. You know, are you giving me the right information for my decision? So let me ask you this, and again, and this this is, I'm not doing any vendor bashing, right? Yeah, Even yeah, though I've, yeah, yeah. I've been on the vendor side for 20 years, so I'm, I'm extremely cautious about not throwing pot charts, but there is also this almost competitive nature where if you're on the show floor, Moscone, and you don't have AI or machine learning in some shape or form in your booth, you're not going to get traffic. But on the flip side, it, it's, it looks counterintuitive. If you actually did not have that, people actually look at you and say, okay, so right. So in some sense, from a vendor's perspective, while even if the most right-minded ones where they want to do the right things, but they still have to elevate themselves 
maybe above and beyond what they can and should be doing yeah. just to stay afloat, right? So when you talk about this first meeting where you actually want to go there and ask the customer the question of the pain, the pain to get to that first meeting, I need to throw all these buzzwords about. Otherwise, I won't even get to that first meeting. I said, how do you, I mean, how does, what advice do you have? <laughs> I think that in this environment, especially, technical superiority is perceived as a plus. Yep. So first, make sure that you find ways to establish your technical superiority. Maybe you're a small startup. Mm -hmm. You don't have, you know, a lot of marketing power. Yep. But do something, prove that you can do something really well. And sometimes, you know, that means, for example, setting up a website where yeah. you allow people to submit samples and you analyze them for free to give an ability, a possibility for people to appreciate yeah. your technical the credibility piece. Yeah. And the credibility piece is the basics. Yeah. Then once you have that, you start having a few sort of like friendly customers that you convince that you're small, but you move fast and you can really innovate the field. Yeah. Because what I expect from a small company is that you innovate. If you are a five-people hmm. company that does exactly the same thing that IBM, Trend Micro, Semantic, yeah. McAfee yeah. do, well, no. Yeah. I expect you to move, move fast. fast and break things. Yeah. So please do so. Prove that you don't have the marketing Baggage. infrastructure, yeah. you yeah. don't have the Salesforce infrastructure, but you have something new. Then you will get the POC then you will prove your superiority and then word of mouth will spread out. I think that buzzwords, having a small company that says, oh, we're great, we do this, we do that, we're great at this, we're great at that, that. No one believes anymore. No one believes that anymore. <laughs> so you have some credential. For us, for example, once again, we come from academia mm -hmm. and so we actually had academic tools, Anubis and WebAwet, yeah. that we made for free available to the yeah. to customers. People use them. They love them, and that feedback is what actually prompted us to start Last Line. Yeah, you know, and for us, it was like, hey, we did that stuff, yeah. and yeah. you seem to like it. Now we have redone it the right way, you know, quote unquote, and now we're selling it. And that was a very good sort of starting point to sort of say, hey, we're not a bunch of bozos. We actually kind of know what we're doing. Right. So you you bring up a counter example of what most Valley startups are, even outside of the Valley, right? Where you have an idea, you go to pitch it to a bunch of VCs, try to convince them, maybe do... I mean, it's getting harder right now. You still need to have a at least a beta product that you can actually show, right? Yes. Where they're saying, hey, it's no longer about a PowerPoint, it needs to be a demo. So the bar is getting higher, but the proof that you're talking about, about that you had as uh, an exec at last line, to be able to actually open source something, get feedback. I mean, that, that's a unfair advantage that you've got. Most companies do not have that, right? In some yes. sense, they have to retrofit the existing product yes. to changing market needs, right? which is where most of them are caught up. But let's switch gears a little bit. I mean, let's go back to your other hat. right? Uh -huh. And so you're in the throes of looking at what the next generation of software programmers and computer scientists and data scientists are looking at. What are you seeing different than, let's say, what you or me have encountered and is their mind shift different? We keep talking about them as the Pinterest generation, which have very little attention span and so on and so forth. What's your experience been? I mean, how are they looking at this new world? Are they shocked? Are they jaded by what their parents have been doing? No, I don't think they're, they're shocked or jaded. Okay. Uh, maybe jaded, but not shocked. <laughs> I think that if I look at when I was a kid or when I was certain of my student's age and how was I was one of the 
few people in, in a huge university caring about security. <laughs> security was not yeah. a topic. Nobody knew about security. If I would say that I knew how to do a buffer overflow, I would be considered, you know, like... <laughs> the guru or something. Oh, my God. You know, like this amazing <laughs> hacker. Now, it's considered the lamest possible things yeah. that you can do and also probably not applicable to 99% of the technology out there. Um, I see nowadays security being a concern everywhere. Okay. People got it. People got it, you know, that some cameras can be networked to generate the largest DDoS we have seen (laughs) in history. We get it that, you know, somebody can steal your information, steal your identity. This is everyday Mm -hmm. experience. So this reflects directly in the experience that we have of computer science and Mm -hmm. education. Right now, it would be unthinkable to teach an operating system class and not teach security. It would be unthinkable to teach a machine learning class and not teach adversarial machine learning. Yep. So this, what was a narrow discipline has become more a cross-disciplinary concern okay. that you have to take into account every time. People realize that. We still have to do a lot being able to educate enough people and diverse group of people to be the next security cyber force. In this, there are many things that we have to do. We have to change some aspects of the culture that has been, you know, white and homophobic and sometimes, you know, not receptive to women in the past. We have to change that. And in addition, we have to find new tools to teach security in new ways. For example, I love the use of hacking competitions. Mm -hmm. I think that it's great because students in this competitive environment, they go crazy, they develop new tools, they get... They do 180% of what they would, you know, otherwise do. So I like those new tools to involve people and make them think about security very early since high school and even sooner if possible. So that's really interesting you mentioned that because you probably know this as well, but I found this really surprising at the social engineering contest they have at Black Hat. Yeah. Where this woman gets into a phone booth and really social engineers are way. And that has gotten so many people now much more aware yeah. versus getting a something edict from security or IT saying, hey, you got to go through this training because having this person who has very little, quote unquote, computer science or security experience be able to completely social engineer away of people giving their credit card numbers, their social security, their mother's maiden name, everything. Right? Yeah. So in some sense, I think it's important, like what you're saying is to be able to transform that culture. Yeah. So coming back to the the ecosystem within an enterprise, right, where you have a quote-unquote lonely job of a CISO, mm-hmm. which is really trying to continuously show ROI and not be in the news for the wrong reasons. Exactly. And be able to bridge the gap with marketing and IT operations and customer support who can literally show ROI pretty much at any given moment, right? So, and I've had this conversation before, I want to hear your opinion on this, is how does that group now make themselves much more frictionless in terms of what they do, but also do they have to be better at marketing and sales internally mm-hmm. so that they become part and parcel of the larger, they're not kind of fighting this lonely battle of, okay, yeah. so we are the torchbearers. Of- yeah, I mean, this goes back to the problem of sort of like selling insurance in a yeah. way. <laughs> and if you look, there was a recently ransomware attack in the Atlanta public or administration and they lost millions of dollars. Mm. So those are the sort of the case studies that say, hey, your investment in some effective 
security ecosystem eventually will have an ROI in not having an incident that costs you $2 million. But this is very difficult. I always compare the job of a security or a CISO to the one of the Gali in soccer, you know, <laughs> nobody cares about you. Zero doesn't. Come yeah, zero, zero is like, yeah, you did your job. You know, you can be an amazing, and nobody recognizes, oh, we had zero goals. You're amazing. No, I was okay, good. But the moment something goes in, yeah, like, you yeah, failed. Yeah. You are a failure. So it's very difficult to quantify ROI. And I think that's when we go back to that triaging thing right. that my value is the time of my people. If I can process events, faster because I assign those events to the right people, then I'm providing value. Because otherwise, say, I block that. Yeah. Imagine something say, blocked attack, blocked attack, blocked attack. After a while, it's like, yeah, that's yeah, not value. Yeah. Well, but that could have gone through. Correct. And you could have been calling some incident response team from some big firm yeah. asking you, you know, $35 million to handle the whole revamp. Don't do that. Right. You know, think in advance. Think It's not just insurance is being prepared. We live in California. I mean, I live in California. Mm. And I am very well prepared for an earthquake. Do I want an earthquake? No. Hell no. Yeah. But the moment it happens, I hope I have enough water and enough, you know, of the supplies that I need and so forth. So you have to think in advance, even though I bought all these 30-year preserved food that I will never yeah, eat yeah, and I don't yeah, want to eat. Yeah. It probably doesn't taste good to eat. It is probably horrible, but I know it's there. Yeah. And in case something bad happens, I feel more protected. So uh, th- this goalie analogy is a, is a very uh, interesting one because how does, and uh, like you're saying, the ROI, right? So the stopped an attack or hit a firewall rule and no one wants to know about that, right? I mean, in a 4-0 match, a goalie comes, hey, yeah, I prevented all this from happening. But at the same time, if you don't do that, you're not going to get credit for the fact that they actually are stopping attacks day in and day out. Absolutely. Right? So is there a PR function, a subtle PR function that has to be like every single day, the CISO and his or her team have to play this out. It's almost like, guess what? Grave is secure, right? No. And over a while, I mean, after a while, obviously people tune out. But in some sense, if you don't do that, then yes, let's say an attack happens, but all the millions of attacks or the hundreds of attacks that did not happen yes. is completely lost. I agree. I, I, th- I think that an interesting experiment, which I don't necessarily advocate because okay. it's a lot of work, but is taking, not really seeing how you have been protected, mm-hmm. but how you fare compared to your peers. Okay. So, okay. you know, compared to a company of my size in my same sector, mm. how well am I doing? You know, how much when, how many attachments that were malicious went through or not? Because that would give you an idea because that delta can also represent a gain in, oh, I now I'm better. You can see the ROI with that in that respect. And you can, you can sort of like fudge up a number across multiple things without being, oh, who's better, Giovanni or John? You know, it's a, but I, I think that could be a way to create an awareness of that. The fact that you, every day you present to somebody a report to say, we saved your <laughs> ass like 50 times, after a while, becomes, yeah, people are going to say, you, you, you become yeah. numb. You're yeah. like, okay, 50, today is 50, tomorrow is 55, okay, whatever. You know, instead, having, for example, really a, an evaluation of the time that a certain person has spent on specific tasks, since you pay by the minute, mm-hmm. then it becomes today, 
you know, before you got this tool, we were spending eight hours on this. Now we spend 1.5. That you can translate, you, you multiply by the hourly rate and the cost of those employees, and you have a number. That's your ROI. So, yeah, once so again, you go back to the human, <laughs> the time, and the right person you, for the right job. Yeah. So, one, and I found this, this particular observation revealing to me. Maybe it's not to you, but I'll just test this with you anyway. So, I was at Black Hat, I think it was two years ago. Actually, last year, whenever Petya happened, right? It was right around that time. And so, this person and a typical Black Hat fashion, they either turn their badges around or they have a fake name anyway, right? So, remembering that name, person's name doesn't even make any sense. But what he told me was very, he says, okay, Sanansibar is now top of mind. Petya just happened to one of his competitors. And he said, my budget went up by $500,000. I'm going to tell the management that this is to prevent ransomware from happening and I'm going to go and fix all the shit in my system for which I never got budget. That are yeah. the real problems. So I then look at it and say, so this is actually a forward-thinking security guy who's, I mean, quote-unquote gaming the system for the right reasons. Yeah, but, but it's, it's, everybody does that. Yeah, so <laughs> it's, uh, but, but I, I think, is that the right kind of message to be sending where you're projecting upwards that, hey, your board is asking you this and yes, we have it covered. And you're going and protecting the stuff that you, again, which is of highest risk for the organization. I think that particular interaction that you describe is unfortunately evidence of a lack of communication yeah. between that person and the upper management. Yeah. Because in a healthy environment, you would, actually, yeah. you would actually able to pass the pain point. <laughs> you know, maybe your pain point is handling the laptops of people that yeah. gets compromised all the time. I know of a company that have only Chromebooks. So every time there is no compromise, it's all in the cloud. Yeah. And something is bad with the thing, you throw it away, you put your key in the next thing yeah. and you're done. They solve that gigantic pain point, yeah. you know, and the problem there is not stealing budget from one thing and use it for another. <laughs> That's, I, I can see how you end up doing that. Yeah. I mean, it, it happens in any environment, yeah. universities, you know, you get a gift for one thing and you end up yeah. doing another thing and you do it for good things, you know, right. wasting yeah. time. But suddenly, you know, you need to progress that particular research uh, direction. And so the important thing is communication and, and being able to make people understand what is pain and what is the result of not solving that pain point. So I uh, know we're almost out of time. So any, any I know we're day three of RSA, depending on when you count. <laughs> but any big, if you had one takeaway so far, things that, something that was, something you didn't anticipate, either positive or negative doesn't matter. <laughs> that, that's, uh, it's... You know, maybe I'm jaded. I, I'm very <laughs> seldom surprised. I would say that I had very interesting conversations with customer more than vendors okay. that surfaced, you know, these problems about saving time, yeah. uh, the analysts, the really, I, I see these customers as trying to understand. And that was surprising because in a way was in line with our previous conversation. Yeah. But seeing that in the context of I'm a little frustrated they only tell me this tool does this, how they do it, why they do it, bomb, bomb, bomb. But, you know, they don't put, they, they don't take the care of work on my use case persona. Yeah. yeah. That, that was interesting. Good. Cool. Thanks for your time. This has been a very fascinating conversation. So, Thank you for having me. Yeah, that was very good luck fun with indeed. The molding the next generation of leaders. And thanks for your time. Okay. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye-bye.